Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Roughly 45 million Americans suffer from irritable bowel syndrome, a condition that can be debilitatingly painful for some or moderately uncomfortable for others, depending on the degree of the bloating they experience and how it impacts their digestive health. Either way, it often leads to people being physically and emotionally drained as they're unsure about what they can and cannot safely eat. This frustration and need has created a sizable market opportunity for innovative food and beverage companies that can create packaged products that are free from or low in triggers for IBS, according to some dietitians and enterprising CPG manufacturers already helping patients to manage their symptoms. In fact, they predict it could be larger than the gluten-free market, which in the U.S. will reach a whopping $2.34 billion by 2019, according to data from market research firm Packaged Facts. But in order to capitalize on this potential, manufacturers will need to work with dietitians nutritionists, and researchers to educate consumers and retailers about what triggers IBS symptoms and how their products can provide relief. So what is the source of so much discomfort and the source of this market potential? Well, the answer, and you should have seen this coming, is it depends. Triggers will be varied by the individual, but for most people, the triggers will be what gastroenterologists and dietitians at Monash University in Australia first identified about 10 years ago as FODMAPs. Now, many of you have probably heard of the low FODMAP diet, which the team at Monash University created as a way to isolate and identify IBS triggers. But if you're anything like me and a majority of the mainstream American population, you're likely hard-pressed to explain exactly what a FODMAP is, let alone know how they can be the foundation for a diet revolution that could grow to be as big or bigger than the current gluten-free movement in the States. At the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo in Boston in mid-October, I went on a mission to better understand what exactly FODMAPs are and how the low FODMAP diet might create a marketing opportunity. My first stop was with Kate Scarlatta, who is a registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in the low FODMAP diet, and she explained that FODMAP is actually an acronym used to describe several short-chain carbohydrates that some people can't easily absorb and can cause discomfort and bloating by dragging in extra water into their intestines or by rapidly fermenting in the gut, creating excess gas. So one of the things that I do when I'm working with a patient, I literally go over the acronym, and I'm like, F is fermentable means it creates gas. And then the O, the D, the M, and the P are different types of carbohydrates, and they're small. And because they're small, they're fermented and drag water into them. And some drag more water in than others, um, but while we're going to do this diet, you're going to restrict these. So when we talk about oligosaccharides, we're talking about, this is the the technical term meaning that it has multiple chains of sugars together, oligo meaning many. And these are fructans and GOS. So this is fructans are um, fructan chains, and galacto-oligosaccharides is galactose chains. Those are different um, small sugars that are connected together into fibers. 
so these are the common sources. Wheat, rye, onion, garlic, artichokes, chicory root extract or inulins, and beans and cashews. Disaccharide is a two-chain sugar, di meaning two, and that's lactose. And we talk about the fact that lactose is not a dairy, because it's not a dairy-free diet, right? So you can have hard cheese and butter, which is a trace of lactose. The things that have significant lactose, which is in the wet part of milk, is restricted. Monosaccharides is uh, fructose, and fructose is the fruit sugar. Really only a problem when it's in excess of glucose in a food. Because glucose, you know how I term it to my patients not quite like this, is that glucose opens the door to your bloodstream and drags fructose in. But if the glucose is done and there's none left, that extra fructose is going to be malosorbed. And it's the smallest, mono, one sugar, that's going to drag in the most water. So patients often, if they have a problem with this, it's pretty soon because it happens in the small intestine. Um, so these are sources of the excess fructose. And then sugar alcohols are... Um, we often think of sorbitol as man and mannitol in sugar-free products, um, but they're naturally in stone fruits, so peaches, plums, that kind of thing. Less in avocados, so there's a little bit of sorbitol. It's not, the more sweet, the more sorbitol. And mannitol is found in things like um, cauliflower and mushrooms. So there's three phases to the diet. It's elimination diet, which is two to six weeks. We pull all of these foods out of their diet. There's a ton of fruits they can have. Strawberries, blueberries, bananas, pineapple, kiwi, grapes, uh, go on. You can have a huge fruit salad. Not really. I don't want them to have a huge fruit salad. But they can have lots of different kinds of fruits. And on um, phase two, um, after their symptoms are controlled, then we reintroduce bifod nut subtypes. So I'm going to add just a little bit of lactose. They stay on the low FODMAP diet, add the lactose, and see if that triggers symptoms. And we start incrementally increasing the amount of lactose in their diet over three days. And if they're not symptomatic, then that's great. We take it out, and then we challenge the next FODMAP. It might be excess fructose, and we'll add in some honey or mango. We select a food that only has that FODMAP subtype because we're really not challenging if you can have honey, but more is excess fructose a problem, what does it do in your gut, and so forth. I don't really care if my patients are having high fructose corn syrup, so I'm going to challenge mango or honey or something that might have some nutritional benefit for them. And, um, and that's, that's the gist of it. Um, the big thing is giving them the tools, and again, this is where dietitians really shine, meal planning, grocery, you know, um, recipes to try. So they really, it's one thing to say, like, here you go, and then go, good luck with that. You really need to help them. So it makes the journey a lot easier. And I have a lot of people come to me and say, I really tried to do this on my own, and it was really much help, more helpful with, with a dietitian. Not everyone has time to cook, even if the recipes are given to them. Right. So I suppose that's where some of these packaged foods come in? Absolutely. And the thing is, absolutely. There's a real great need. We're all busy. So there's going to be a need for a packaged food. That, and patients are looking for that. I, you know, when I post Nestle or Fodi or the, the incoming foods, they're all over it. Following up on what Kate said about the need for low FODMAP packaged foods, I next headed to the booth of Fodi, which is a new company and an early entrance in the low FODMAP diet CPG space. In fact, it claims to be North America's first FODMAP diet-friendly food brand, specially designed for IBS relief. And at the company's helm is Steven Singer, who also founded Glutino in 1999 and was a pioneer in the gluten-free food space. 
Stephen drew several parallels between celiac disease and the gluten-free movement and IBS and the emerging low FODMAP category, including the latter's potential for growth and influence in how Americans eat. For example, he noted that when Glutino first launched, virtually no one knew what celiac was and what the gluten-free movement was. Now gluten-free foods have their own sets in grocery stores, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a consumer who hadn't heard of gluten-free, even if they might not be able to say exactly what gluten is. Stephen hopes to do for IBS and the low FODMAP foods what he and others did for the gluten-free category. While he's unsure how long it will take to achieve this goal, he's confident that the effort will be worth it. You know, they say that um, those requiring a low FODMAP diet will be approximately 15 to 18 times greater than celiac than a gluten-free diet. Um, but of course, we also know that the gluten-free diet went across borders to, you know, to autism and to, you know, other neurological disorders and skin disorders. So, and even was a trend for a lot of people thinking that if they were eating gluten-free, they were eating healthier, which wasn't necessarily true. But IBS is so much bigger. Um, it's a bit of a catch-all for so many different types of gastrointestinal um, conditions, you know, digestive diseases and stuff. So I think it's a big opportunity in terms of um, the reach and, and the number of people that will require this diet. But I also think there's a lot of education that has to come with it before people will just change the way they eat and, and, and you know, especially for retailers to say, hey, we'll put this in our stores. Like, they need to understand who, why, and all that type of thing. So I, I, I do think the market's very big, though. So from a manufacturer's perspective, what are you doing or what can other companies interested in this space do to help with that education first? Well, we're seeing companies like Nestle get into it um, with a drink. Um, we're a company that's all geared towards food. We'll be working very closely with the dietitians, with the GI, uh, with the gastroenterology, you know, um, domain, and marketing, you know, towards the IBS community and towards people that need it. Um, how do we do that? Well, we got to educate. We got to educate retailers and buyers, and work with the dietitians in the retail supermarkets, uh, pharmacies, and, and really. Grassroots, the same way we did at Coutinho with Group Free, try to go right to the bottom and try to figure out, all right, if, if we educate the dietitians that are dealing with IBS patients and the patients that then understand that there are foods out there for them to live their life normally, well then I think we'll you know we'll we'll get to where we want to go. So Gluten Free currently has signage and whole aisles in grocery stores. Is that the best way to do this as well? I think we're a long way from seeing aisles um, of low FODMAP foods, um, but I'd love to see it. I mean, I think that um, there's a lot of people that are crying out for product, and, um, you know, we're okay whether you put our pasta sauce and our salsas next to other ones, as long as people understand that once they see Bodhi, once they see the low FODMAP stamp, once they understand that it's certified and it's safe to eat, um, then, you know, it doesn't really matter how they merchandise it, but uh, maybe they'll be tagged in stores eventually that'll see a low fly map. Um, I guess the merchandising will come later, but right now we just want to make sure it's accessible to people. So, one of the things that I was talking about with a dietitian is that this is an elimination diet and it's short term. Are there marketing concerns about a short term? No, because we're, there are so many people that need this diet. People are going to be trying it every day. 
new people are going to be going on the diet every day. Um, will people then go off the diet? Well, if they follow their doctors and their dietitians, they're going to try to find out how to reintroduce certain ingredients. Um, I feel that with Brody, what we're trying to, we're geared towards some of the basics, some of the staples in people's lives. If they have a great pasta sauce from Italy that makes them feel good after they eat it, and it tastes amazing, I, I'm pretty confident they're not going to go veer into, you know, into another, they're not going back to their other sauce. I mean, you know, are there certain things like an apple? Yeah, hopefully they can reintroduce an apple in their life or they can find a vegetable that they've been missing that they can reintroduce. But I think where we're going is we're not trying to replace apples. We're trying to give you a, a basic sauce or salsa or, or marinades or, or bars that you could just enjoy, and they taste as good. They're, you're not missing anything. So I think where the reintroduction is, it's specifically geared towards certain functional products or foods that have probiotics in them that they want people to still get. So if you can tolerate that, they want you to have that. That's what the medical field and the dietitians are saying in Monash University. We're not here to dispute that. We just feel that if we can give them the basics in their life, um, they're not going to. Uh, I don't. I don't think we're going to lose them. And quite frankly, I think we'll gain more and more people every day. So even if we do lose some, there'll be new people to try it all the time. I think it's a good transition. Also, you guys are relatively young company and you have a lot of SKUs here. Can you walk me through your lineup? Uh, sure. We have a, um, we started with research with IBS consumers to ask them what they wanted the most and the answer was overwhelmingly sauces, pasta sauces, a salsa, um, barbecue sauce, things that people use every day. Um, so that's where we started. We have two pasta sauces, a marinara and a tomato basil that is made in Italy. Um, we have a salsa made here in the United States, uh, a mild, eventually we'll have a medium and maybe even a crazy hot one. Um, we have a barbecue sauce that is great. Uh, we have two infused oils, a garlic infused oil and a shallot infused oil that people can cook with or they can add it to their sauces when they're eating their, their dishes. Um, we've got two amazing bars that are, you know, almond coconut and a dark chocolate nuts and sea salt. Again, and then we have a trail mix that is uh, mini small packets in a multi-pack so that you could just take a 30-gram packet in your purse, briefcase, or school bag, or whatever you want, and you know it's all going to be calculated out so that you know it's safe to eat. Um, you know, so that's where we're starting. We have, uh, we have a great lineup. We have a lot more products behind this, uh, but we got to walk before we run, you know? Another early mover in the low FODMAP space is Nestle, which showcased at the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo a new drink called Pro Nourish, which is designed to help those following the low FODMAP diet still receive all the nutrition that they need. Barbara McCartney, the regional business head for Nestle Health Science Consumer Care in North America, hopped on the phone with me after the conference to explain what Pro Nourish is what sets it apart from other shakes on the market, and to talk about the potential in the low FODMAP category. What sets ProNourish apart is that it's a low FODMAP nutritional drink. And, and that may be a new term for some people, but uh, this is a drink that's designed to be compliant with the low FODMAP diet that has been designed for people who have digestive sensitivities. And... ProNourish is the first nationally distributed product of its kind, and which really is what sets it apart on a national scale. 
Um, the drink itself was um, specifically designed with the guidance of healthcare professionals. And again, what makes it stand apart is that it's very convenient. It's a very appropriate solution for people who are looking for an option uh, during their busy day, their day away from home, um, that is low in FODMAPs, uh, and a nutritious option. So ProNourish gives great nutrition. Uh, it comes in two delicious flavors, and it's very convenient. It can be taken anywhere. Low FODMAP diet is an exclusion diet, and therefore it does require someone to really think about their food choices uh, really at every eating occasion and make sure that they are not having foods that would trigger their symptoms. And um, this can be really challenging when you're busy during the day or you're away from home. In fact, we have had people tell us that um, they'll just go through an entire work day and not eat um, just so that they don't have to have, you know, a, a situation of, uh, you know, discomfort or worse. And so um, imagine going through your entire workday not eating and, and, and often doing that. So that really not only can take a toll on someone's energy levels, but there's also that creates nutritional issues in and of itself then if you're not getting good daily nutrition. So having something that was designed to be um, compliant with a diet that was meant to remove you know, these different triggers uh, is, is a solution that could be beneficial to so many people. Uh, and it is the convenience aspect. It's, it's been developed. It's, it's all in there uh, and makes it you know, something someone can know that they can bring along with them on their day and have it as a, a mini meal or a snack, and they know that it's fitting within this uh, low FODMAP approach that they've been taking to their eating. As you heard, both Fodi and Nestle mentioned they've both gone the extra step to get their products certified as low FODMAP compliant, a service that Monash University began as a way to help patients who follow the low FODMAP diet. Caroline Tuck from the university walked me through what it takes to get certified. Um, so certification program as well as the smartphone app um, was all um, really quite instrumental was uh, Dr. Jenny Muir who has done a lot of um, a lot of the um, work in, in getting the information out there. And really what, what they wanted to do was actually be able to translate the information from the studies into clinical practice. And that's what we think a lot of people do poorly. They might find it good things, but it's about getting the information out there to the patients and to the dietitians to, to, to tell the patients. Um, so the app was really instrumental in terms of the fact that our department worked out how to test foods in a lab, which meant that that could then be translated into an app that patients could have on their phone. And the certification program is kind of the next step from there because all patients always want to know which brands they should be having. But as a university, we can't be promoting specific brands unless obviously they're part of some form of program. So the certification program really was a way to give more brand specific information in a way that we felt comfortable with. You know, that they were A, actually low FODMAP, they tested low FODMAP, but B, also um, nutritionally, you know, they're good products. So we're trying to avoid certifying, you know, um, sometimes food trying to avoid having lots of, you know, high sugar, high fat options, um, but obviously the more options we can give IBS patients, the better. Um, so in terms of the certification program, it really comes about by contacting our department. Um, essentially the food products will need to be sent to our lab 
and we usually would require a multiple sample so that we can pull the pull them and test them as, um, as a pooled sample because um, obviously there might be slight differences from one to the next. And um, once they're tested in our lab, the process of actually testing them takes about three weeks. Um, and then once they're, they're tested and we know whether or not they're low or high for that, we can go from there. Caroline also noted that the certification obviously doesn't just help dieters identify safe products. It also helps manufacturers drive sales and build the new category. It's a good marketing tool in a lot of ways in that you're listed in an app that's now downloaded in over 100 countries. So from that point of view, you know, a lot of downloads of the app, which is great. Um, and I think in terms of patients, the patient experience, they just want to know what they should be eating and they want direction. So if you're given direction that that's the bread you should be having or that's the, you know, that particular product is the brand to go for, then you know, it's, it's going to you know, convert the sales for sure because the patients want the information. And the IBS patient is, um, is a, I guess, a different type of patient in a lot of ways and they want to follow things correctly and they want to do the, you know, do the right thing and they will, they will do what they're told as such usually. Um, so, yeah, so if they're guided, they'll definitely go for what's recommended. Reflecting on the market potential for low FODMAP foods in the U.S., Caroline echoed a lot of what the others said in comparing it to the gluten-free movement here. She noted that there is huge potential for low FODMAP foods in the U.S., but that it'll take time and education to fully meet and capitalize on consumers' need in this space. How much time is hard to predict, but based on the market in Australia, she suggests that the trend will be fully developed in the U.S. in about four or five years. So definitely something that we should wait for, watch, and see. In the meantime, I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I'm Elizabeth Crawford, signing off.